right, let's let's move into treatment modalities. <clears throat> so, Mike, tell us all the things that we can. I put Justin on the spot before. Tell us all the things that we can do for treatment for glaucoma. Uh, nothing. Yeah. Topical <laughs> medications, eye drops, injectable sustained release medications, laser, surgery, and surgery can be MIGS, minimally invasive glaucoma surgery, or more invasive glaucoma surgeries, which would be like tubes, straps, those types of things. Uh, and we can also do kind of cyclodestructive procedures, um, which sounds really bad, but basically it turns on the faucet, make sure the eye doesn't produce too much fluid. Um, I think I covered them all. Great. So, um, Laurie, what do you think is the right, the ideal progression of treatment? So, and let's, let, of course it varies patient to patient. Let's just say vanilla glaucoma, if there is such a thing. A patient comes in, they're 57 years old, they've got a pressure of 25, and um, and then we're going to know that our crystal ball, is, that they're going to progress over time. How? Which treatments are you inserting, starting with and inserting along the way? Yeah, so I think for historical context, it used to be meds, 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 surgery, like mean, bad surgery. And then and now we have the option or we kind of moved into this era where it's like you can either do meds or SLT. They're both good. And now that we're getting more data on the, the power of SLT and how it's actually protective for reducing surgeries and reducing field loss, um, it's the algorithm to me has flipped to where SLT should really be elevated as a first line option. Um, it's not going to be right for everybody. Some patients are not going to like SLT or it's not going to work for them. But to me, it's above meds now. And then you can always insert at various time points meds. You can insert drug delivery and MIGs are great at throughout the treatment algorithm, depending on disease severity, but definitely at the time of cataract surgery. Great. And um, Justin, one of the things that we talk about a ton is compliance. And do patients use their eye drops? Now compliance, I don't really love the word because it feels like they're out of compliance and they did something wrong. Adherence may be a better word. But I sometimes wonder, have we overstated the compliance issue. I know there's data out there that says maybe up to 80% of people don't do their eye drops right. 50% is kind of what we say. I, I believe that that could be true. I, I generally get much better at flossing for the week and a half before I go see the dentist. And I imagine our glaucoma patients think of us the same way. But are we overplaying compliance or is it for real? Yeah, I mean, I think the data would say it's for real. I question a little bit, a patient that's on one drop, I do believe is it can be fairly compliant. Once you start adding drops, two drops, three drops is where I think we run into compliance issues. But I also don't just think about drops as a compliance factor or adherence factor. I think a quality of life with them too. And, and it's that balance. So it's quality of life and adherence. So um, that's great if they're taking their drops every day and they're on three drops, but if they come in and their friends are telling them their eyes are red and their eyes are burning and hurting, 
uh, that matters as much to me as whether they're taking them or not. And so I think it's a balance of adherence as well as quality of life. And can we minimize that with the treatment options we have available now? Justin, uh, we published a paper together on the challenges that eye drops present medically to the surface, specifically dry eye. In 30 seconds, walk us through the take-home then. Well, we, we did it. It was a MIG study, really, and we looked at you know patients that had ocular surface disease ready to undergo cataract surgery plus uh, stents. Uh, you know, we ran them through a quick OSDI, so ocular surface disease index. They scored about a 40, uh, which is in the severe level uh, on that index of, of symptomology. Uh, they underwent cataract surgery plus a stent or stents. These patients were only on about one and a half glaucoma medications before surgery. After surgery, they were on about a half of glaucoma medication. And their OSDI went down to around uh, 21, 22, which is almost to the uh, normal state. Uh, not quite normal, but they went from severe to mild, uh, which is a big deal, and less medications as well. Yeah, got it. And we're going to go to a section here after a little bit about, and I'm going to propose to you guys what you would want if it were your eye in different you know, scenarios. And I think that that'll be really fun. Um, but Lori, you, you talked about big, bad glaucoma surgeries. What would you want to have done prior to having one of those big, bad glaucoma surgeries? So first, tell us what the big, bad glaucoma surgeries are. Why are they big and bad? Are they all bad? And then what would you want to try first? Yeah, and I, I feel bad calling them big and bad because they're wonderful surgeries when they work well and you don't have any issues postoperatively, and they can be great for controlling pressure long-term. So disclaimer. Um, but generally people think like trabeculectomy as like the big and scary, right? Because you're creating a controlled flap in the eye wall and that can be hard postoperatively to predict and to control um, hypotony, hemorrhagic issues, um, scarring, things like that. It might not work after all that. And then uh, tube surgery. So you're sticking a foreign object under their conge and into their anterior chamber and the cornea doesn't like it. And so uh, it, it's a great surgery when it works, but there's certainly issues that can come up with it. Um, so what I would want if a surgeon was presenting that. To... Sir, I'm going to pop sure. you for a second. No, you don't need to be sorry. I interrupted. But, um, but so traps, tubes, what about Zens? Do you put a Zen in the big bad category? And I know you said they aren't that bad or that big. And I, and I agree, but they can have devastating consequences. And you're living with those consequences for the rest of your life. But my real question is, okay, you talked about tubes and traps, both subconjunctival, connecting the inside of the eye, underneath the conjunctival, both with a blub. You put Zen in that category. I do not. Um, I definitely think of Zen as a, a tick above MIGs are ab interno surgeries, but Zen to me is has a great safety profile. It's um, uh, it's very predictable postoperatively. It's cornea friendly, and uh, you don't get as many of those dreaded complications. It, it you know it's not scot free, but the rates of those things going wrong are a lot lower. So no, I don't think of Zen as big bad. Zen now is I'm my friend. Pause. I like Zen. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna pause just there and then get back to the question that I asked you, Mike. Zen in the big bad category? Um, no, I put it in between. I'm making a third category in the middle. Yeah, okay. Justin? Yeah, no, I wouldn't put it in big bad category. 
Now, I'm the outlier here. I probably would. I, I agree that it's not as it's the it's the safest it's the tier. Best to the worst. It's the best of the worst. <laughs> I, I think. Um, and and then to so going back to the question I asked you, what would you want done before you do those, Lori? Do the big bad ones? Does that also apply to Zen if it's not in the big bad category? So go ahead. I'll say this. Zen to me is the worst mistake you can make with Zen is trying to get too much out of it. So if you're delaying the treatment the patient needs, if they really need a big bad surgery and you're saying, I'm too afraid to do that, so I'm going to try a Zen instead, you might be denying them the pressure control they really need. So that to me is the biggest risk with Zen. Um, so for me personally, before I would have you know a trab or a tube, I'd want to make sure for sure, like we talked about, my field is truly progressing. We're on track with my IOP target and there's nothing I'm doing at home uh, lifestyle wise to make my glaucoma worse. The other thing is um, I would want to try SLT or MIGS if my nerve can tolerate that sort of intermittent step. Um, so I wouldn't want to go straight to that. Even if I had severe disease, I think I'd still want to try something smaller because I believe with a little combination of drops and MIGS, you can get patients controlled for a while. You got it. So what I think that I heard there is I would want to try basically everything before going to tube or trap or probably even Zen. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Zen takes up a quadrant of tissue. And so, yeah. yeah, before I play that piece, I would want to make sure we're exhausting the proper options. Justin, Mitch, would you disagree? No, no, no. I, I agree. I mean, I agree. I would rather do angle-based surgeries, your stents, your goniotomies, exhaust those before moving, you know, to Zen. I still don't put it in the big bad category. I mean, I think it's just a tier below big and bad. Last, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I am... I continue to think it's the best of the worst. Um, Mike, Mike said it better than I did. Okay, real quick for the last minute of this uh, part on treatments. Uh, Justin, let's talk about eye drops for a second. Which eye drop do you use first? Prostaglandins as a category, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, prostaglandins still in our first line category drops to use. What do you use second? Second line, I typically go to a combination agent just because I'm someone that does not plan on using three drops on a patient. Uh, I have you right next door to me. And so if I'm going to a third drop, I'm typically thinking MIGS anyways. And so I go to a combo agent, added to a prostaglandin. If I can't get control, then they're likely having some type of procedure. Do you have a particular combo that you like better than the other or doesn't matter? You know, I, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I pay attention to, you know, systemic side effects. I'm going to try to avoid beta blockers if there's concerns there. So I'll do a, yeah, sometimes I'll use one without a beta blocker. If they have, if there's no concerns, I'll use them with a beta blocker. And then if you do have to add a third med, then what are you going to? Uh, if I'm adding a third medication onto third that. Bottle, if you already have three meds, so third bottle. Yeah, yeah. So the third bottle will be whatever's not in that combo agent that I can add to it. You know, because some of them will have a you know, CAI, some will have, um, you know, an alpha agonist. So whatever's not in that, that's what I'll do there. Or the rock inhibitors, or combine, right. you know, with, 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 a with, a with a compounding pharmacy, there's some non-preserved ones as well. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. So there's compounding pharmacies that will put together all of the drops in one bottle or all the drops that are off patent anyway, in one bottle bottle. What's your experience been with that? Uh, it's been decent. It, it's not my go-to. Uh, it, it's a lot of times a little bit of a Hail Mary sometimes, but it's for patients that are suffering from those quality of life issues I talked about. 
that aren't ready for a surgery or we can't do a surgery on them for whatever reason it may be. And I can hopefully improve adherence because all those are in one bottle and you watch them closely and, and hope you get the pressure control you need. Yeah, you know, one of the challenges we think about with those is that prostaglandins are usually once a day, other medications maybe multiple times a day. When I was a resident at the Durham VA, it taught me that I'll take what's doable over what's perfect every time. And so, um, although I'd like to have both, I'll take what's pragmatic and doable because it actually gets done. Last question to you, Mike, uh, drug delivery. Uh, Darista, very exciting now. iDose was just approved. Um, big picture is Darista is going to last four to six months. 70% of people will still have affected six months. Looks like if the phase three data holds with what the phase two data showed, that'll be similar for iDose, except for iDose will be 70% last three years instead of six months, so roughly six times longer. When do you think, where, where are these going to play a role in the treatment algorithm? Yeah, I think they're great. And so I think they'll play a big role in the treatment algorithm. I, for me, you know, the performing the eye dose, uh, it's a, you go inside the eye, slightly bigger incision than, you know, the, um, uh, than the Darista, but anytime you're going in the eye for cataract plus MIGs or standalone MIGs, you know, you're adding in the, the eye dose and getting that really long sustained release, uh, delivery. You've got someone that, you got to elevate treatment on, like you just mentioned, like what's your second drop, what's your third drop? In my mind, you know, as we were talking about those questions, it's uh, I'm not adding a second, third bottle. I'm doing this procedure with IDOS or Darista, but probably IDOS because, you know, for me, less is more, meaning I can go in the eye one time and get a lot longer duration of it. And so these, um, so to me, that's where they, there's, there's a lot of places where they fit. And I think it's great that it's got so much flexibility. Uh, Justin or Lori, anything to add or disagree with? I'll just comment, you know, some of my favorite patients in, in clinic right now are using these drug delivery devices that have, you know, quality of life issues, just giving them what I like to refer to as a drop holiday, a break. They're so thankful for it. It's not a long-term therapy right now and a forever treatment, but it's amazing how much you can clean up the ocular surface. And I also love to use it when we're preparing a patient for surgery, when you're going to do a surgery on them, like a Zen, where they're hot, they're inflamed, if we can get that calmed down, uh, you know, the chances of them doing better is good too. So they definitely serve a purpose. Lori, any comments on that? No, I just wanted to push you on something. I'm oh, just cool. curious what we can cut this out if you don't want to, no. uh, or we can, yeah. we can paste it in. We can paste it in earlier, but I want to loop back to why you think Zen is big and bad. We didn't hear why. Yeah. Um, I've had complications with Zen, uh, subcoidal hemorrhage, hypotony that lasts for a while, exposed shunts. And to me, that side effect profile that does occur with these, and, and I've seen it, um, with folks that not just ones that I've done, but others have done. So I don't think it's just me. Um, it might be me more, but hopefully not. Uh, that side effect profile that is present with Zen that isn't present with uh, canal-based procedures is what puts it in the big bad category for me. And I wouldn't go to that unless I had exhausted the other options first. Okay, that's fair. Messing with the um, conjunctive. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, somebody told me once that God, uh, we surgeons cut, God heals. And I think that any time that we're reliant on healing uh, is there's some risk there because we don't have as much control over it. 